first reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And the second reading is from 1 John. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if, anyone, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Elizabeth, for reading so well. And good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is John Forsyth, the vicar here at St Jude's. And can I extend a particularly warm welcome if this is your first Sunday here at St Jude's, if you are visiting uh, by yourself or on the invitation uh, of a family or friend, if you are joining us online, we are delighted that you can be with us, uh, particularly over the next three weeks as we look at some confronting questions addressed to followers of Jesus. 
And this week we're looking at the very big and complicated question of, is God good for you? Is God good for you? Uh, one of the tricky things about this question is actually the word, not so much God actually, which is complicated, but the word good. Uh, we can use the word good in all kinds of different contexts. I had a good coffee this morning. Uh, the next slide you'll see, we can ask the question, uh, is Taylor Swift a good singer-songwriter? Answer is, of course, right? Um, otherwise, why did we spend so long trying to find tickets uh, for her concert? Um, we kind of know what the word means generally, but, but, but important to now down, what are we looking at when we say, what do we mean when God is good for us? Well, we tend to use this word good in a social and moral context. And what I mean by that is it's something that has a right or desirable quality, something that benefits us. And so do we not need God to be good? Well, if we look at a poll from 2017 by the uh, Ipsos poll, which is an international poll, asked the question, do you agree with the statement that religion does more harm than good? Here are, here are some of the results. Uh, across the world, uh, 49, so roughly 50-50, said yes, religion does more harm than good. Australia, you'll notice, was significantly above the world average, 63%. In fact, Australia was the second highest, the second highest when it came to thinking that God is perhaps not good for you. Uh, we were beaten by those pesky Belgians. They have potato chips and a greater concern for religion than us. But nonetheless, we certainly live in a culture that is, to put it mildly, not always overly enthusiastic about God and religion. And one of the most common complaints you might hear when we discuss this question is that religion leads to bigotry and to violence and to war. It makes good people do bad things. Uh, Nobel laureate Steven Weinberg says, the world needs to wake up from the long nightmare of religion. And he actually goes on to say that perhaps science can play a role in getting rid of religion. Now, I must say, I actually agree with anyone who, uh, who, who holds the view that, uh, that uh, so I'll try that again. I must agree with anyone who condemns and abhors violence, particularly when it's done in the name of religion or God. It's important to note as we begin that lots of people have done evil things in the name, not just of God, but in the name of Christianity. And so there's much for us to lament and to be ashamed of. So is God good for you then? Well, I'm going to argue this morning, yes, for three reasons. Uh, firstly, Jesus' teaching is actually good in spite of what his followers do. Uh, secondly, there's lots of evidence that shows that believing in God is good for you. And thirdly, I want to kind of take the question in a slightly different direction and show that I, I actually believe we actually need God to be good. So there are the three points I'll look at this morning. Uh, there is so much we could cover here and my first draft of this sermon was over an hour long uh, but I knew that wasn't good, <laughs> for you at least, I, I would have enjoyed it, but for you anyway. Um, so let's, let's look at these three things together. Jesus' teaching is actually good. Now what I mean by that is, uh, those who do evil in the name of Jesus 
They're actually doing the opposite of what he taught. Jesus explicitly prohibited the use of force either to defend or promote himself or his message. He calls his followers radically, not just to love your family and friends and neighbors, but to love your enemies. He calls us to pray for our enemies. And it's not pray that they'll be hit by a tram, by the way. It's pray for their blessing. Jesus did not attempt to impose his message by force, but in the interest of truth, he openly and plainly condemned the kind of rigid, unthinking, exploitative religion that concentrated on ritual and selfish advantage. Time and time again, as we read the story of Jesus, he's reaching out to those who are at the bottom of the social run. He is calling out injustice. Jesus argued that what needs to be changed is actually an inner attitude of our hearts, that we are created for a deep relationship with our Creator, which expresses itself in love and in service of one another. And so the Christian faith repudiates violence. And so anyone doing violence in the name of Christianity is actually doing the opposite, the complete opposite of what Jesus taught. First point, quite quick. Uh, secondly, there's actually lots of evidence that religion is good for you and actually good for others in your life. Professor Andrew Sims uh, was the former president of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. Uh, he's done a lot of work on the question, is God good for you from uh, a mental health background and from a physical health background? Uh, and in 2009, he wrote a book called, Is Faith Delusional? Why Religion is Good for Your Health. Uh, he concluded that the advantageous effect of religious belief and spiritua uh, spirituality on mental and physical health is one of the best kept secrets in psychiatry and medicine generally. By the way, that research has been replicated in lots of different places. Uh, the American Journal of Public Health did a major study, a meta study of lots of other studies, and found that people with religious involvement are happier, more hopeful, less depressed, less anxious, less likely to abuse drugs uh, and enjoy, I quote, greater marital satisfaction, which is a polite academic way of saying, I have a better sex life. But you can't say that in an ac academic paper, apparently. Uh, that was also backed up by the 2012 Oxford Handbook of Religion and Health, which did another meta-analysis of research and found that uh, religious participation is positively correlated with a whole range of both physical and mental health outcomes. Other studies have shown that those who attend a religious service at least once a month are twice as likely as non-believers to volunteer in non-religious civic uh, uh, service. So not just volunteer for Christian stuff, but to volunteer for secular things. Uh, 39 of Australia's top 50 charities are Christian. And of the remaining 11, lots of them used to be Christian or religious as well. Now, there's a whole lot of data out there that shows that in a world that's increasingly lonely and disconnected and wrestling with all these things, 
there are significant social and, and mental and health benefits for being part of a church community, to being part of a religious group. God is indeed good when it comes to social capital, when it comes to health outcomes. So God actually is good for you and good for other people. Well, thirdly, I want to also argue and kind of get in a bit more, more detail here that we actually need God in order to be good. Now, what I'm looking at here is to kind of ask the question, is God required for us to be good? That is, to live a moral life. Now, on the face of it, I, I would suggest perhaps the obvious answer is actually no. We don't actually need God to be good. I've got a, a, a long-time friend who's an atheist, and I asked him this question. We had a good discussion on the phone. And this is what he said. He said, what makes me happy is striving for a world in which less people die in pain and hunger. And I think we'd agree, surely that's, that's a really good thing, right? Uh, so are there other perfectly adequate bases for being good other than religious ones, other than God? Uh, Julian uh, Savalescu, who's the professor of practical ethics at Oxford University, says, yes. He argues, I believe that God's existence is irrelevant. What matters is ethical behaviour. And I think that's a poignant argument. But what's left unsaid in that argument is this. Who or what decides what is ethical behaviour? What is good or moral behaviour? Um, how do we know what good is beyond just our personal preferences? We, we kind of get this in some aspects of life. If your football team wins, any Carlton supporters here, or if your team wins, is that a good thing? Right, yes. When Collingwood loses, is that a good thing? Yes, right. We, but if you're a Collingwood supporter, you might think, no, 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 that, that's, you've got that the wrong way around, John. Well, uh, Fedor Dostoevsky, who's a famous Russian novelist, kind of captures the logical conclusion of this thought uh, in, in his famous uh, work, The Brothers of uh, Karamazov, I can't pronounced that correctly, when he says, if God does not exist, then everything is permissible. Now, he's not arguing that people without religious beliefs are incapable of moral behaviour or being good. That's obviously false. Indeed, there are many times where Christians are actually put to shame by our non-believing family and friends. The point is, not that we can't be good without God, the point is, without God, it is very, very difficult, not impossible, to find a foundation for morality beyond personal preference. In other words, without God, it's very hard to describe with certainty, with an absolute definition, what good is is if we reduce our world to a purely material view of the world it, it is pretty much impossible to say what is absolutely good or absolutely evil we may have a preference but it's hard to make that an absolute and in our world our postmodern world we kind of struggle with this conclusion because it feels like there should be 
And so what we often do is, as a culture, as a worldview, particularly from a Western worldview, is hold two contradictory views at the same time. I wonder if you can recognise them. The first is, you should not impose your views on other people, particularly if you are in a dominant culture. That is cultural imperialism. There are no absolute standards that you should enforce on other cultures. You need to stay in your lane. We need to respect the diversity of cultures that are out there. That's a common argument, right? But at the same time, we want to say, look, there are absolute moral imperatives that we respect human rights and honour, freedom and dignity in every single human being. So we do think there are absolute morals. But the question is, on what basis? On what basis? If you want to ask the question in a kind of slightly more cynical way, you could ask the question, why are you worth more than the chair you're sitting on? Because we would believe that's the case. But what, what's the argument for that case, though? Now, the source of this moral tension was often, uh, was famously described by a Scottish philosopher called David Hume. Uh, Hume observed that authors of moral philosophy, that is, those who kind of work out what the good is, advance their theories on what ought to be the case based on a, a whole list of factual statements about what is the case. Now, the problem with this, uh, which is what David Hume pointed out, was even our greatest understanding of the physical world, of what there is, doesn't mean we know what things should be. In other words, life doesn't come necessarily with an instruction manual on how to use it. For example, science can tell you that if you put strychnine in your vicar's coffee, right, it will kill him. But science can't tell you whether you should put strychnine in your vicar's coffee. Can I suggest you don't? Don't, don't try this experiment out. But science doesn't give you a moral framework to work that out. And it's very hard to work out what ought to be the case simply from what is the case. One is an observation. This is, this is what we see. The other is a value judgment. This is what we should see or things should be. So where can you go? Well, you can perhaps look to nature and say, well, let's, let's look at nature. Can we construct a moral argument, a definition of good from nature? Or well, some animals mate for life. That's a model. Some animals have multiple partners. Uh, the male praying mantis gets eaten a third of the time by the female after mating. Which one do you want to go for? I, I don't like the third one. I might have a preference, but it's just a preference. What about our genes or evolution? Is there a kind of morality we can distill from that? Well, if a, a person is nothing other than their genes and these genes control our behaviour, how can then we be blamed for doing what is right or wrong? We are just, in some sense then, mere slaves to our genes. In, in other words, the challenge is not that you don't need God to be good, it's just that it's meaningless to make that statement unless we have a very clear definition of what that good is, and without some external authority, it's extremely difficult to do so.
there is actually no right or wrong, good or evil, there just is. As my atheist friend put it this way, he said, if you pull it apart, if you're being truly rational about it, then there is no ought. I can go out and do whatever makes me happy. And there's nothing actually wrong with that. But I don't do these things because I truly, uh, I think because I truly should in some removed sense. I do these things because I feel like I should. But I hear you ask, does that really mean that underneath it there is nothing? Well, yes. And I have to live with that. Sometimes it feels empty. But do I think it feels empty because I'm missing something, some salient fact like God? No, I think it feels empty because it is empty. In fact, even Richard Dawkins, who's no big fan of Christianity or religion, says it's pretty hard to defend absolute morals on grounds other than religious ones. So where do we go from here then? Well, I want to say that Christianity actually offers a fantastic moral vision, not just of good, but indeed of hope. Is God good for you? Yes. Christianity actually gives a plausible reason why both believers and non-believers can be good, can do good things. Uh, in the biblical view of creation, human beings are made in God's image. And there are kind of there are lots of things that flow from that, but two key things. Firstly, that means each and every human being is inherently valuable because they're made in God's image. And secondly, it makes us moral beings. Moral beings. And that means human beings do possess an innate sense of what is good and evil. Whether or not they believe in God, my atheist friend doesn't, but he has an inbuilt sense that there is right and wrong, which is a little different to other animals. Dogs don't have war crime tribunals or set up a you know, dispute resolution over whose tennis ball it really is, right? It'd be hilarious, right? But we, we do, we have this innate sense of justice and morality. Indeed, the Bible opens with a quite radical claim that the world God creates is good. We, we read a very small part of that uh, this morning. It was very radical, by the way, when the Bible was written. It wasn't the common world view, but it's actually come to become more, more appreciated. And throughout the creation story, we have the repetition of the phrase, it was good, it was good, it was good. And the bit we saw, we read, it was very good. Plants and animals, fish, birds, all those things. And he places good people in this good place to do good work. That's, that's the opening picture of the Bible. And as we go on throughout the creation story, we read that in the center of this beautiful garden that's God created, this good garden, is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the creation story, to have the knowledge of good and evil means to claim the independent right to define for yourself what is good and what is evil. What is true and what is false. What is beautiful and what is ugly. And what we see throughout the creation story is that good and goodness is intimately related 
not just to, to God's commands, but indeed to his character. It's who he is. The Bible tells us that God himself is the good. It's a reflection of his character in the way he makes creation. And therefore, the claim to have the knowledge of good and evil isn't just a moral claim, it's actually a claim to be God. And God knew that it would be utterly devastating for any human being to kind of cut the cord of dependence from God to claim the knowledge of good and evil for ourselves. And so he creates this beautiful, good world and places good people to do good work. But of course, you and I know that's not the picture. You only have to read online any news story, see the news, your own life experience to know our world is not like that. And this is the bad news. Uh, in the early 1900s, uh, the Times newspaper ran a headline, what is wrong with the world, and invited people to offer their responses. I wonder what you would write. People wrote in, you know, education system stuffed up, or the class system's a disaster, or too many rich people, not poor people aren't being looked after. Uh, G.K. Chesterton wrote the briefest response to this question. He said, uh, dear sirs, this is in response to what's wrong with the world, I am. Sincerely, yours, G.K. Chesterton. And what Chesterton was doing was actually just echoing the biblical view that the problem with our world is people. People have walked away from the good God. Oh, we had this mentioned in our second reading in 1 John uh, 1 verse 8, where John writes here, if we claim to be without sin, which is just a simple Bible way of saying that we reject God's way of living, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is all that guilt and uncertainty, that emptiness, our moral failings. In short, it just reflects the reality that we actually know that we're not good and we know that our world is not good and we long for it to be so. We have this great hope that things can be good again. But like a patient in need of a heart transplant, it's not something that we can do ourselves. So what do we do with this problem? Well, the best news is that Christianity says the solution to our moral failure is actually not doing good, but hearing good. Hearing the good news of Jesus. Notice in verse 8 had the problem, and in verse 9 we have the solution. If we confess our sins, he, that is God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, what this means is rather than us trying to do good things, to try and fix up ourselves and our world and each other, which always fail, God actually offers us the beautiful gift of forgiveness. And it's a gift that is free of charge. Why is it free? Well, it's because Jesus, who actually was the only person who was truly good, bore the cost of our moral failure by dying in our place on the cross. See what it says there in, in chapter 2, verse 1? 
If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is, it says there, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's the good news. See, Christianity is actually about news, not deeds. It's not advice. It doesn't say, do these good things and your life will be fulfilled. And you'll have a relationship with God. It says, no, it's been done for you. And what this means is that the love which Jesus has shown you on the cross means there's actually not one good deed you can do to make God love you more. There isn't. That's how, much, that's how big his love is for you. And Jesus' love means there's not one thing you've done that could make God love you less. That's how big his love is for you. And what this means is that forgiveness is available to everyone. The good, the bad, the ugly, wherever you fit on that category. There is no sin so great that Jesus' death has not covered. That is the good news. That is the hope that Christians declare. Is God good for you? Absolutely. He offers you new and eternal life. A life that we could never win for ourselves. He gives us hope. And so if you would like to explore further this hope, can I encourage you to scan that QR code? Whether you've been at church for 50 years or 50 minutes or somewhere in between. It's a chance to investigate this good God and this good news. Don't waste this opportunity. Come and explore the hope that the good news of Jesus offers. Let me pray.